if you had two minutes with Jesus and you knew you could ask him one question, what would you ask him? Anybody want to know who's going to win the Super Bowl today? Now listen, don't waste your question on that. We already know the answer. Go Pats, right? The Patriots are going to make history today, all right? Now, how many of you would ask, Jesus, how can I be happy? It's a pretty important question, a pursuit in life. In fact, at Yale right now, they're offering a class on happiness. It's the most popular class that's ever been offered in its history. A quarter of all the students at Yale right now are taking that class. Maybe they'd ask that. Or how many of you would ask, Jesus, how can I be financially secure? Everybody needs money to live. I'd like to have some of it. How can I be financially secure? Would anyone want to know when they would die? To know the date and the time? Anybody would want to know, hey, Jesus, I'd like a status report. How am I doing? Am I doing life right? Today, we're continuing in Mark's gospel, and we meet a man who actually gets a few minutes with Jesus, and he gets his one question with him. In fact, I think his question is a question that we should all be asking. I think it's an honest question, and it's a question that lies at the center of every human soul. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And fortunately for us, Jesus answers that question for this man. And he also answers that question for us today as well because it's been preserved in his word. So as we look at Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, we're going to see the answer to that soul-stirring question. In fact, as the story unfolds, Jesus is going to answer several interrelated questions of identity, questions of impossibility, and questions of inheritance. So in our passage today, Jesus is going to answer our questions of identity, our questions of impossibility, and our questions of inheritance. So let's look together at verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember, as we've been going, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem with this laser focus to complete his mission. And on the way, he meets a man. So what do we know about this guy? From this story And also from Luke and Matthew's gospel, we know that he's wealthy. We also find out that he's young and that he's a ruler of some kind. And so if you've seen this passage before, maybe even the heading in your Bible, it'll say the rich young ruler. He's one of those guys, if you met him today and found out about his stock portfolio, found out about his his career, if you looked at his life in every way, shape, or form, you would say, this guy is all set. And as Jesus is passing through, the rich young ruler recognizes him. Maybe he's heard of Jesus. He's heard of his reputation, and he doesn't want to miss out on an opportunity to ask him a question that's been burning inside of him. See, this is the kind of guy he doesn't miss an opportunity. And when he sees Jesus, he wants to capitalize on it. So he runs up to Jesus, and he kneels before him. And we see this physical posture of kneeling shows an inward posture of humility to listen to Jesus. And then he asks him the million-dollar question. But if you adjust for inflation, it's probably like the trillion-dollar question. 
He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in this question, there's a couple of assumptions that I want to tease out for us. The first assumption comes in the way that he addresses Jesus as good teacher. Did you see that? See, he sees Jesus primarily as a teacher, one who gives insight, knowledge, and advice. He kind of sees Jesus as this spiritual consultant, right? Like you have a financial planner and you go to him and you say, hey, look, here's my stock portfolio. What do you think? Am I well diversified? Is there, are there any new stocks I should be investing in right now? This man's coming up to Jesus, laying out his spiritual portfolio and wanting to make sure that everything is in line. And the second assumption that he makes is that eternal life is about doing. Did you hear that in his question? Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? For this man, for this rich young ruler, eternal life, the way to salvation is by doing. It's something you achieve. It's something that you earn. And not only does this question reveal an assumption about how he thinks salvation works, it also tells us where he, is, where he is deriving his identity. Here's what I mean. Identity, by its very nature, is something we derive. It's rooted and sourced in something. Because we all need someone or something to tell us who we are. It's how we're hardwired. In fact, we can't help it. When, we, when, we, when someone says, tell me about who you are, and we begin to unfold our identity, everything we say is wrapped up in something else that's telling us who we are. So we say, I'm a father, which means I have children. Or I'm a husband, which means I'm married. Or I'm a pastor, which tells about this job. All of these identity statements are derived from something or someone else telling me who I am. And for this man, he derived his identity from his possessions and his accomplishments. And the deepest part of his soul, there's this song and this refrain that's going on and on. I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what I have. I am what I do. See, for him, his identity is based on his performance and his achievement. This will become much clearer as we move on. This question is so much more than a question of where he will end up for eternity. He's not merely asking, at the end of time, where will I be? It's a question of identity. When you, un when you unpack that question, it's saying, Jesus, who am I? And did you notice, he's asking Jesus what else he needs to do in order to be secure. He's saying, Jesus, what else do I need to do in order to secure my identity? And in asking the question, it reveals an insecurity in this man's life. See, on the surface, he might appear to be all set, right? He's got everything in order. He's the kind of guy, if you met him, you'd go, man, I, I would love to live your life. But in reality, at the core, he's still searching. Or else, why would he be asking Jesus if there's anything missing in his life? Why would he be asking Jesus if there's something else that he needs to do in order to achieve this security? Now, look at how Jesus responds to him. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. 
Honor your father and mother. And the man said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Now, as is pretty common for Jesus when you ask him a question, he usually responds with a question. He's trying to get clarity. He's trying to hone in on really the question beneath the question. And in those days, it was common practice to come up to a rabbi and address him as teacher. But Jews did not walk up to any person and call them good. And it's not because they didn't think there were any good people out there. It's because good was, a, was, was one of those words that you just kept to talk about God. It was kind of a special word. It's a word that was reserved to describe God and God alone. But notice, Jesus doesn't correct him. He doesn't say, look, why are you calling me good? I'm not good. He's just asking, why are you calling me good? He reminds him that God alone is good. And then he asks, why are you calling me good? Do you realize what you're saying? Do you understand just how near the truth you are by calling me good? If you're ready to call me good, are you also ready to call me God? Jesus is saying, don't be fast and loose with the word good until you're ready to call me God. But Jesus kind of leaves that alone. He doesn't interact with it. He moves on and he addresses this question about doing, right? The guy said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he says, okay, let's give you a, a test on how you've done. What about these six commandments, right? He lays out the, the second half of the 10 commandments. And in reciting these to him, Jesus isn't merely reminding him of some words back in Exodus 20. He's asking, man, have you kept these commands? Pertinent to the question of his wealth, Jesus asks, have you defrauded anybody? In other words, have you misrepresented the facts in your business dealings? Is that how you acquired your wealth? Or have you exploited people and lied to them to get your way to the top? And the young man replies, teacher, all of these I've kept since my youth. What he's saying is, Jesus, I've acquired my wealth legitimately. I really have tried to live a good and honest life. No Ponzi schemes, no bank robberies. My wealth has come through honest work. I've tried to be just and kind in my business dealings. And now notice, Jesus doesn't call him a liar. He doesn't say you're self-deceived. He doesn't say you lack self-awareness. Jesus receives what he says. He doesn't respond with a cynical line of interrogation. You see, for Jesus, he believes it's entirely possible to earn wealth honestly, to invest well, and succeed. You can work hard. You can make wise decisions. You can be business savvy, invest well, and succeed. That's entirely possible in Jesus's worldview. And we know Jesus isn't afraid to confront somebody and to call sin, sin, right? So he receives his, his statement and says, okay, all right, fair enough. See, for Jesus, having money is not inherently wrong or sinful. Now, it also doesn't mean that this man is so foolish as to think that he's lived a morally perfect, sinless life. That's not what this guy is saying. He's merely saying what most people think. Hey, Jesus, I have lived a pretty good life. Not perfect. I'm not saying that. But I've really tried hard to do the right thing. But given all of that, this man still has some sneaking suspicion that something is missing. So that's why he's there with Jesus asking him, what do I lack? 
Now, at this point in the conversation, you know, Jesus said, you need to do these things. He said, well, actually, I've done a pretty good job of that. He's probably feeling pretty good, right? He's measured up. He's kept the right commandments. My, in my estimation, he's ready for Jesus to pronounce for him, hey, man, you've done well. You will inherit eternal life. Your identity is secure, and your destination will be secure as well. Look with me at Jesus' response in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In response to him, Jesus looks at him. And Mark says he loved him. Mark didn't have to include that. Jesus loved this man. See, when Jesus looks at you, he sees you. And he sees all of you. He sees your past. He sees your present. And he sees your future. He sees your hurts, your deepest desires. When Jesus sees you, he knows your greatest hopes. When he sees you, he sees your fear. He sees your insecurities. He sees your dark places. He sees your shame. He sees our guilt. You see, before Jesus, nothing is hidden. When Jesus looks at you, he sees you. And when he sees this man, what's his response? Does he reject him? Does he offer a hard correction? No. His very first response when he sees him is to love him. It's amazing. Jesus always responds first with love. That's why you can trust whatever he says next. You can trust him because he loves you. It's not do all these things and then if you do it well, I might love you. No, Jesus looks at him, sees him, and then loves him. And then he's saying, look, I love you. Now trust my words. Trust that my words and my direction are for your good. Jesus is a good teacher because he's a good savior. That's why he can tell him what he tells him. And so looking at him with loving eyes, Jesus invites him into something that is contrary to everything he knows and values. What does he say? He says, give it all up and come follow me. See, in order for this young man to freely be able to embrace Jesus, he's got to free up his grip around his money. All of his trust and his security is tightly bound up in his wealth, not in God. His identity is attached to his money. You might be asking, well, how do you know that? You can't see into this man's soul. In this text, we see by his reaction to Jesus where his security really lied. Because when Jesus called him to give it up, he couldn't do it. To give that up would be to give up everything that tells him he's significant. He's achieved success. He's financially secure. And now he's in this position of power. He's climbed the social ladder. He's even been morally and religiously successful. On the surface, he is all set. And Jesus looks down into his soul and says, 
But are you really all set? Are you really all set in every way that it actually matters? And this man knows it. There's this hint in his soul that he doesn't have it all together. He's been wondering, am I missing something? Am I looking, overlooking something? And of course he was missing something, right? If eternal life is based on your performance and doing, then of course you're going to miss something. There's going to come a moment when you don't do it right. Perfection is a hard standard to achieve, isn't it? How can anyone ever really be good enough? I'm not saying that we're not good, but who can be good enough to attain God's perfect standard? How can anyone have assurance that they've ever measured up? Despite everything you accomplish, there will always be this emptiness, this insecurity, this doubt, this nagging sense that everything doesn't add up. See, most people believe that you have to be good in order to get into heaven. Ask someone on the street, what does it take to inherit eternal life? Ask, what does it take to get to heaven? And they'll say, most people will give some answer like this. You've got to live a good life. And whether they say it explicitly or implicitly, people all have this standard or rule of what it actually means to be good, right? But is it the right standard? Is it actually the standard that God gives? Jesus looks at this man and he loves him and he's willing to tell him the truth. You know that true love is willing to have hard conversations, right? That's, that's the real sense of love. A real friend, a real partner is willing to tell you hard things in love. You see, being a Christian, following Jesus means everything in your life becomes negotiable. That's actually one of the main lines of being a Christian. It means that everything in your life is now negotiable. So Jesus can say, give away your wealth. But if you hold on to it, then it shows that you value your wealth more than God. To follow Christ means he's actually the only one non-negotiable thing in your life. If there's anything in your life that has more priority or more value than him, then that thing, do you see it, is actually your treasure. If God is not at the top of your priority list, then whatever is, is your highest value, your highest treasure, it's the thing that actually is giving you your identity and your worth. It is your God. See, in following Christ, everyone is going to have a choice. There's going to be something that in your life is going to compete for that top place with God. Something will be more valuable to you than God. Something will compete for your greatest affection and devotion to God. But see, God will not share the throne with his gifts. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. See, an idol, yes, it can be like a man-made thing you sit down to and pray to, but in the modern world, we don't build those kinds of temples anymore. An idol, biblically speaking, is anything that is more important to you than God, anything that consumes your heart and imagination more than him, anything that you would look at and say, that thing or that person will give me my identity. An idol is whatever you look at and say in the heart of hearts, if I have that, then my life will have meaning. If I have that, then I'll know I have value. If I have that, then I'll have significance and meaning. And I'll finally be secure. Every one of us in here will place something above God. 
And if they become our God, they become toxic and destructive. See, God's gifts are good, but they're only good to us when they're in the right order. Only in the right priority do they actually become good. There's a biblical theologian named G.K. Beale, and he says it like this. It's very pithy and it's very powerful. He says, what we revere, we become, either for our ruin or our restoration. Let me say that again. What we revere. That just means what we worship, what we hold in highest esteem. Whatever we revere, we will become. And that will lead either to our ruin or our restoration. Or another way to say it is like this. What we worship or value most, we will become like it. It will either restore all that's broken in us, or it, um, and it will give us a new identity full of significance and meaning and worth, or what we worship will lead us to our ruin. So let me give you an example. Take this man's wealth and achievements, right? It's what he values most right now. With one turn of the stock market, one financial disaster, one misstep, and a life built on wealth and achievement can come crashing down. That happened in the not too recent past for our country, right? 2008, 2009, a lot of people who had their entire security and wealth built in their finances came crashing down, didn't it? Material possessions are ultimately fleeting and they will fade away. And if you continue to worship them, you will fade away just like them. Do you see what happens? You become just like them. You become fleeting. You become fading and you share their same fate. In love, Jesus is calling this young man into a relationship with him that actually leads to his restoration. He's calling the rich young ruler into an identity that is received, not an identity that's achieved. Jesus is trying to take this young man deeper because this man has only skimmed the surface of his own depravity and he's never mined the depths of God's grace. And a tragic turn of the story, at the pain line, this young man's faith and humility reaches an end. He can't trust Jesus enough to actually believe that he should give up all his wealth to gain greater riches, to gain the greatest treasure. Remember Jesus said, if you give this up, you'll have treasure in heaven. And this man walked away disheartened and sorrowful. See, ultimately, his possessions owned him. He didn't actually own his possessions. And obeying his master, he walked away. His identity was found in what he had and what he had done. And he couldn't give it up, so he walked away. He could have had an identity that would last, an identity that doesn't fluctuate with the stock market. And he could have had an identity where he was known truly and loved fully, but he walked away. Jesus answered this young man's question of identity, but it just simply wasn't a que- an answer he wanted to hear. So now let's keep moving and see how Jesus deals with this question of impossibility. Look with me at verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? See, 
With the rich uh, young ruler walking away, Jesus turns to his disciples and explains to them that it'll be very difficult for those with great wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's a summary statement of what just went down. He's trying to help them understand why this man would walk away from this invitation by Jesus. Because the rich young ruler chose his own riches over the riches of the kingdom. And it says the disciples were amazed at what Jesus had said. What we have to realize is in their time, the disciples grew up in a culture that didn't see money as inherently evil. In fact, they saw people of great wealth as those who were favored and blessed by God. If you saw someone with that kind of blessing, you would think, man, they must be killing. I mean, they must be doing everything right because God is blessing them and giving them abundance of wealth. They assumed that their material prosperity meant you were living the good life, and God was pleased. And it was also true that if you saw someone living in poverty, you would just think, man, what? I wonder what that guy did. I mean, what's going on in his life that God's given him nothing? Must have done something bad to live on the streets like that. The problem with that thinking is that's actually karma, not Christianity. But Jesus doesn't describe to these overly simplistic views. Great wealth is not necessarily exploitative, nor is it always a sign that God is pleased with your lifestyle. Now let's keep going. Look with me at verse 25. Jesus said, it's easier, actually, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And now they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. See, this metaphor of a camel fitting through the eye of a needle is not merely suggesting that it's really difficult, right? The metaphor actually conveys an impossibility. Jesus is saying it's impossible for the rich to get into the kingdom of God. Jesus actually wants you to visualize and picture a camel trying to squeeze through with all those humps through a sewing needle. It's impossible. And that's actually Jesus' point. But don't miss the nuance here in his teaching. Jesus never said it was a sin to be rich. It's not that rich people are bad and poor people are good. That is not what Jesus is teaching. Jesus never makes silly blanket statements like that. He's not offering some simplistic warning either of going, look, just be careful that you don't fall into greed. And so from time to time, give some alms to the poor and you'll be all set. No, Jesus is, look, is, is taking them much deeper than that. And the disciples are picking up on it and they're shocked. And so they ask the question, well, then if these guys who look like they're having their, like their life is all together, if they can't make it, then who can be saved? From their vantage point, it looks like salvation is impossible. From everything they can tell, the wealthy and the well-to-do have it all together. They're experiencing blessing, and so naturally it follows that they would be the ones to get in to heaven. What Jesus is teaching here is this, and it's, it's explained and shown in the young man's life. He's saying money has a particular power to blind us to the reality that all of us actually have something radically wrong with us. And that money, and he's also teaching that money and financial security is fleeting. You see, money has an ability to provide us a, a false sense of security, right? I mean, if you've got money to pay your bills, you've got money for your future, and that stress is taken off of your life, 
you kind of feel like things are good. I don't have anything to really worry about. Money has the power to deceive us from our true spiritual state that all of us are born into. We're actually all born spiritually in poverty, and money can blind us to that reality. Lots of money can make us forget about how desperate and in need we are of miraculous intervention from God. See, we can get so caught up in the glitter of our money that we don't see the brilliance of God and that he's actually the greatest treasure in the kingdom. The rich young ruler walked past it and he walked away from the greatest treasure of all. See, that's why Jesus is saying it's very difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God just like the impossibility of a camel fitting through the eye of a needle on its own. But then Jesus adds this caveat. Yeah, it is impossible with man. But with God, the impossible becomes possible. See, if the rich young ruler would have recognized Jesus as the greatest treasure, not merely as some teacher, he would have been able to enter the kingdom of God. Unless we miss the point, money isn't the only thing that can blind us from seeing Jesus as the true treasure, right? Now, money does have a particular deceptiveness, for sure, and we, we can't just move past that. If, if money is, a, is, is, is something that you value most, you've got to see it can blind you. But the application of this passage is it can be anything. Anything can be so valued that it blinds us from seeing our spiritual need of God. And so for some, it might be popularity. And I don't mean like high school popularity. I mean being known and being famous, feeling special, being sought out for our skills and our talents. For others, relationships might become your non-negotiable. Jesus, you can have everything, but my relationships are mine. You don't get to touch those. We can even take something as good as family and make it the most important thing in your life. The problem is family is good, but it makes a horrible God. And even that, even family, even something so sweet as that, it's not more valuable than God. For others, it might be safety and security. That's the thing you value most. For others, it might be comfort. You like nice things. You don't want to be bothered. Maybe it's the need to be needed. This feeling of I want people to, to need me so that I can feel significant. For some, it might be success in your career. I'll know I'm somebody when I reach this status. For some, it might be experiencing all that life has to offer. It's the most important thing. I want to experience and drink the marrow of life. See, for the rich young ruler, it was money. What is it for you? That's the question all of us have to answer this morning. What is the one thing that habitually competes for that top spot with God? If we don't know what that thing is, we'll be blinded by it. 
Now, don't misunderstand what God is saying in this passage. He is not. I think I've said it three times. I just want you to hear me. He is not condemning wealth or possessions or family or relationships. He's not saying higher education is worthless or that good financial planning is antithetical to the kingdom. In fact, he's actually for all of those things. He is not simply forbidding ambition or using your gifts and talents to work and succeed. In fact, he actually calls you, use your talents to succeed in business. Be, use all that God has given you and go for it all. But it can never be your highest love. It can never be your top priority. He's simply saying these things cannot be the center of your trust, the anchor of your soul, and the deepest longing of your heart. It cannot be the highest pursuit of your day. Jesus is saying that all of us have something radically wrong with us. We were all tempted to take God's good gifts that he's given us and make them more important than him. All of us have this propensity to find our identity in something other than God. And because we all do that, every one of us in here are camels who cannot fit through the eye of a needle. All of us. It's impossible for us to get through. But with God, the impossible becomes possible. With God, sinners like me can fit through the eye of a needle. All we have to do is be willing to find our worth, our value, our hope, our security, our meaning, and our significance in Jesus and in him alone. And when that happens, camels fit through the eye of a needle. So Jesus has answered our question of identity and solved the problem of our impossibility of fitting through. Let's look at these last couple verses quickly to see about our inheritance. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Praise me, Jesus, please. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children and lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions, mind you. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Peter, you got to love Peter. He opens his mouth as usual, right? And he boasts. And he's like, look, Jesus, look at all that we've given up to follow you. We're not like that guy over there. We left our nets, our fishing business. We left our careers on the Sea of Galilee. We've even been willing to go weeks at a time without seeing our families. And it's true. They have given that up. But you see, Peter's just as insecure as the rich young ruler. He's looking for affirmation from Jesus. Jesus, please tell me I've got it all together. Tell me I'm not like him. Now, Jesus doesn't commend Peter directly, but he broadly teaches that those who follow God, and we've been saying this over and over, those who follow God and give up treasures of this world will receive an inheritance. That's true. You can bank on it. Ultimately, giving up the treasures of this world will not leave you with the short end of the stick. Whatever is given up will be restored. And Jesus mentions giving up house and family and land. And if you take these things together, it's basically a way of saying, the most fundamental elements of your life, if those become negotiable with Christ, if you're willing to give them up, if you're willing to put them on the right priority, no one is going to get gypped. No one. You won't give up anything and be left empty-handed. That's not how God works. 
You know, it's ironic that Peter is the one to speak up here, right? Boasting all, about all that he's given up to follow Jesus. Boasting like he's the one who's got it figured out and that nothing is more important to him than Jesus. And it's true. For Peter, possessions didn't possess him. He did give up his business. He's, he was willing to leave house and home for weeks at a time to go and follow Jesus. But later in the story, we're gonna find out what Peter does value more than Jesus. See, later, during Jesus's trial, we see that Peter valued his life and his reputation more than Jesus. See, in a few weeks, Jesus is gonna be on trial to be crucified. And during the trial, a little girl is gonna go, hey, mister, aren't you one of his disciples? Hey, I've seen you with him before. And Peter's going to do what? He's going to deny him three times. See, Peter just hadn't had his moment yet when he had to give up something that he truly valued. We don't know how the story ends with the rich young ruler. Perhaps one day he saw that his riches were fading. And that teaching of Jesus, that seed of truth came up. I'd like to think that he hooked up with some disciples and joined the church and became a force, a disciple-making force in the kingdom. But we just don't know what happens to him. But we do know what happened to Peter. After he denies him, he's dejected. He remembers, oh man, Jesus even warned me that this would happen. But eventually, Jesus, or Peter has an encounter with the risen Jesus. After Jesus is raised, they have a breakfast together. And Peter's kind of off on the side, sulking, hiding in his shame. And Jesus walks over to him. Peter has an opportunity to repent of his cowardice at the trial. He has an opportunity to see that, see that Jesus gave it all so that he would never be left in want. And Peter came to see that Jesus would love him no matter what. Peter came to see that Jesus was the true treasure and the true inheritance. And in fact, Peter goes on to write a, a book, a little letter that becomes preserved for us in the Bible for all time. Look what he says in 1 Peter. Peter writes this. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Do you see that? Peter finally got it. He saw there is an inheritance for me, and so I can treasure Christ now. Our inheritance is secured with Jesus forever. It's not going to perish. It won't be defiled. It's not going to fade away. And right now, family, your inheritance is being guarded and kept in heaven for you. As we wrap up, I want us to remember, Jesus gives us an identity not based on achievement and performance, but based solely on his love for us. Our hearts are prone to take good things and make them ultimate things. And when we do that, we settle for an identity that cannot possibly provide all the meaning and all the significance and all the worth that we need. And Jesus achieved the impossible for us by living the perfect life and dying the sacrificial death. He makes it possible for camels to fit through needles. Because he loves us, that's why we can trust his hard words today. That's why we can trust him to give up earthly treasure to inherit eternal life. 
So don't miss this. How do we inherit eternal life? How do we make sure that we're restored? We value Christ above all else. That's it. He becomes our treasure. And when, he does, and when we do that, sinners like you and me not only fit through eyes of needles, but we receive an inheritance that is waiting for us. Let's be a people who treasure Jesus Christ above everything else. Let's pray.